Welcome back to the Carter Exchange by Medtronic. So uh, are the guidelines reflecting current practice? People criticize sometimes guidelines saying, well, they're always a little bit behind. You know, you first have your trials and then you get the guidelines. And so there are people who create guidelines and there are people who write guidelines. Uh, the ones who are in trials are the ones who create guidelines and the ones that then write down it and summarize it are the ones that write the guidelines. So Morel, what, what is your, what, are you a creator of guidelines or are you a writer of guidelines? <laughs> well, uh, I think the the guidelines um, uh, they 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 did a good job of talking about the heart team and these nuances, as Joe said, of what you know what it's hostile for Tavi, what's hostile for surgery. Um, but I think, and when we're talking, this podcast is about lifetime management of the patient with uh, aortic valve disease, and so that, in my opinion, is where the the nuances around that strategy have been have not really been uh, taken into consideration. Now, when we put a transcatheter valve, there's, you know, 65 year old bicuspid valve really doesn't want surgery. We give them a TAVR. So then uh, we know that explant TAVI data is coming out now that it's uh, challenging, you know, 15% root replacements, uh, pretty high um, one-year risk of stroke and death. Although that cohort, again, half of them were urgent. A lot had endocarditis. These were earlier days. They were higher risk, frailer patients. And I'm sure that surgical explant data will improve. But the alternative of doing another transcatheter valve inside a transcatheter valve, this is where, you know, to me, this is based on like uh, science fiction right now. It's uh, such limited data to support that strategy, particularly in patients with a small aortic annulus. And when you look at, you know, the partner data all across the board, when uh, the women who had uh, who were in the trial, 75% of them had a 23 uh, uh, Edwards valve or smaller. That's a small valve. You know, when you put a 23 Sapien valve in, you're leaving the hospital with a mean gradient in the double digits. You know, you're 15, something like that. And so the concept of, well, we're then going to put, you know, maybe a self-expanding valve inside that to relieve the AS in the future when it deteriorates. I mean, this is not going to work. And so to me, that's the area where the uh, uh, guidelines sort of um, uh, didn't quite, uh, didn't quite get there. Right. So, so is that an option, uh, Joe, if you have an, a surgical valve first and then put a tarver in a surgical valve? Or would you say, well, you know, you can also give a transcatheter valve at the age of 60 and then do a TAVR in the TAVR at 75? Well, I think morale, you know, hit that on the head. Uh, there's not great, we don't have really great data on valve and valve in, you know, TAVI valve and valve, TAVI in TAVI valve and valve. That's, there's almost no data about that. Um, and there's limited data on TAVR. Uh, a valve and valve with a surgical valve, but there is more data in that subgroup than the than the prior one. Um, I would I will tell you that you know it's done a lot in the uh, TVT registry. It's about seven to seven and a half percent of every TAVI uh, in the United States is done as a valve and valve procedure. So it's pretty it's being used a lot. Now it's also true that uh, morale is correct, uh, and uh, many many researchers have shown this that uh, you know uh, patient prosthesis mismatch. Uh, in valve and valve, no matter which way you go, whether it's valve and valve in a TAVI or valve and valve in a surgical valve is very, very high. Okay. And it's especially high in women. She's right. Uh, and um, so I would, I would say that that is a very important concept, especially if you're young. Uh, there's some data to suggest that 
you know, you have a decreased life expectancy, uh, you know, for uh, a, a year for every five millimeters of mercury mean. Uh, so it, it does decrease your, your life expectancy. Um, and uh, so uh, that that data set is probably not quite ready for prime time yet. And, and we'll need to get a longer a longer uh, uh, lifespan. I would say that I think that the that the one area where there might have been a little bit of overreach by the guidelines was in, is in the low risk group uh, because the data set when they wrote those things was only two years max. Uh, and uh, and actually, you know, the, the curves were were uh, kind of moving in the wrong direction at two years in some in some of the trials. So I, I think it was a little bit early, but I think they they if you look at the at the guidelines uh, in detail, they did try to hedge, don't you think, Peter? They tried to they tried to hedge back on the low risk group in on both the American and the European side. Yeah, I, I guess also the age uh, factor, you know, uh, is because of the uncertainty of durability. And that's that's why they put a lot of emphasis on the 75 years in European guidelines because there's not a lot of evidence yet that the valve lasts as long as the surgical valve. So there's still some uncertainty there. Um, so so maybe then you know if we talk about this decision making, which is not easy actually, that's what we pointed out here. And if you think about the heart team, you know a lot of emphasis is on the heart team. So Bob, you know there are surgeons that say you know I, I I trained I went to medical school that I did my general surgery then I went to cardiac surgery. And I learned to operate these difficult cases, you know, endocarditis and aortic roots and, and transplants and mitrals, et cetera. Now they also want me to do transcatheter aortic valves, but I'm not trained in wires. So let that to the cardiologist, let me do surgery. So what do you think? Is that, that the right approach for surgeons or, or? No, that would be a very wrong decision for surgeons. I think that if you want to play, if you want to stay in the game uh, technology and you don't want to uh, be kind of, uh, you can say, uh, not actively involved with the delivery of care, specifically with aortic valve disease. Aortic valve disease uh, is a type of a, a disease that will become more apparent that now definitely um, decision-making and planning is a team approach in terms of how we deliver that care depending on what age they present. And I think what Morel and what Joe have mentioned regarding patient prosthesis mismatch, I think that you have to make a plan long-term what's best for the patient if they present at a young age or at an old age. So as a surgeon, you have to have all the, you can say, skills and trainings to be able to provide the care that the patient is most beneficial for that and make sure that you're there in terms of provision of further care in the future. So if a young patient... 60 years old has aortic stenosis and the decision is first to have a surgical valve in and then potentially a valve and valve taver and then again so that's something that if you do not embrace and go on that particular type of uh, 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 train that's got uh, the, uh, the, the wire skills and the transcatheter therapies then you'll be left behind and you will not be actively involved so as surgeon it's very critical for us to make sure that we are right in the forefront with these type of interventions, all right, with these type of innovations, and basically we are part of the team. So I would really recommend the younger surgeons to definitely embrace this and try to learn from uh, our cardiology colleagues and to work together as a team to deliver the care. Right, but maybe you can ask, you know, so Joe was a young medical student when PCR was introduced. Um, wasn't you Joe, or weren't you Joe? <laughs> and <laughs> why, why didn't you learn to do PCI? <laughs> um, I, you know, here's the bottom line with that. Um, clinical practice 
Um, and this is a little bit different in the different continents and kind of your uh, super regional uh, approach or super regional uh, uh, kind of how things history is that clinical practice is dictated at the trial clinical trial level. That's a very important point for these po for the podcast listeners. Clinical practice, as it sh shapes up, ends up over long term, is dictated at the clinical trial level. Very, very important. So what happened? Well, uh, in PCI, uh, surgeons were ne never really involved with that, even at the clinical trial level. So therefore, it was not part of our of our uh, you know armamentarium, and was never going to be. However, TAVR TAVI is completely different especially in the United States, where the prospective randomized trials were mandated by the FDA because they were very wise that the best outcomes would be done by a, a, a team of cardiac surgeons and interventional cardiologists. This was then codified at, at, the, uh, at the CMS level. So this is at the governmental level about payment because as everybody knows, if it's not about the money, it's about the money. Uh, so uh, the, and, and so the, the NCD came down and this has now been adopted by the private insurers as well, in the United States anyway, that uh, a team approach is mandated, not only mandated at the, at the level of intake, but also at the level of the execution of the operation. Now, this is not the case in Europe or maybe Canada. Uh, and uh, so, again, clinical practice is dictated by the clinical, by, by, the, by the, how the clinical trials were run. And so that's the answer to your question, Peter, why TAVR is a little bit different regarding, you know, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, cardiac surgical, you know, uptake compared to say PCI. It's, a, it's an historical issue. So, so do you foresee, Morel, that, that at a certain moment, you know, technology will progress further and that a TAVR will be um, a single operator procedure? You can still discuss in the heart team, you know, whether the patient should go for surgery or for TAVR. But to Joe's point, you know, it's reimbursement. So if one person gets reimbursed, would it still be a hard team approach? Or is it important? I think it's a crucial question. Um, as a TAVI implanter, I find that understanding the nuances of the implantation and the procedural aspect helps me make a better decision about the upfront decision to have ta TAVI or surgery. And so if you move, if you, you know, if you take surgeons out of the game and it would go that way, not the other way, obviously you know, we're not going to take cardiologists out of the game. And so if you did take surgeons out of the game, I, I actually think you're doing patients a disservice in the long run. Um, and there have been arguments to say, oh, we don't need a surgeon in the room. And uh, certainly there are centers in Canada who operate that way. Uh, we don't. We're, we're a very strong team and we take turns doing the case as primary operator. Um, and it's been that way for, for quite a while. But I, I think it actually, apart from the reimbursement issue, you can't really function as a proper valve surgeon uh, if you don't understand the nuances. And it's understanding the nuances. To do that, you have to start from the presentation, the clinical assessment, the imaging, the procedure, and then the, you know, long-term follow-up. And I think you really have to be part of the whole pathway to, to understand it properly. Yeah, uh, rightfully so. I guess, you know, you have two treatments that are, can give optimal results and you have to find the right one for the right patient. Right, right. You know, as, a, as, a, as an educator of many, many residents um, uh, in our program, you know, uh, I think the old days of, n of not having quote unquote wire skills is, is wrong. I mean, 
uh, our residents have incredible wire skills coming out and have for quite a while now. And this is at the level of all the mix work that we do, all the tavers that we do, and all of the TVARs, you know, the aortic work. So um, I would suggest uh, uh, that the underlying, you know, message here for the younger surgeons is, is that you actually cannot practice modern cardiac surgery without uh, knowing transcatheter, whether it's endocardiac, endovascular uh, work. I further echo what uh, Jonas mentioned, even for treatment of heart failure these days, there's a lot of, uh, uh, you can say devices are delivered to like impellas or the portrait duos, all these things for right heart support, left heart support are all done through wire scales and, and kind of uh, uh, transcatheter type of approaches. So I totally agree to practice cardiac surgery in the 21st, 22nd century, you have to have wire scales. Right. And so, so Bob, we started with the uh, the heart team already many, many years ago, in, even in coronary revascularization. And uh, and that's something we introduced also with the Syntax trial. Um, so there's still, uh, do you do heart team discussions also for coronary revesc? And what would be your advice to centers that don't have a heart team? I think that... Uh, a heart team approach for coronary disease is also extremely beneficial, specifically in complex patients with syntax scores that are greater than 32 and they're of high risk of intervention. Uh, I'm a big proponent myself of the hybrid approach for revascularization uh, uh, because for high risk patients, uh, instead of basically putting them through a, a complete surgical revascularization, you can easily these days uh, do a minimal invasive type of approaches and then for the cardiologist to stent the other vessels, if you know that putting the patient through the hole, you can say complete surgical revascularization would be of high risk. Again, a heart tumor approach allows you to be able to triage patients based on their age, risk, syntax score. Another thing to see what's the best modality of revascularization, whether it would be surgical itself, PCI itself, or a combined approach of either of the two. So I totally agree, a heart tumor approach and regular weekly meetings to go over complex patients, reviewing the angiograms is extremely important. And that's what we have at our institution. Yeah. So always advocating a heart team approach for, for surgical AVR, transcatheter AVR, but also for the coronaries probably. How often do you meet them, Morel, for with your heart team? How often do you meet per week? We meet um, for mitral clips once a week, for MR patients once a week, for uh, aortic valve patients once a week, and for coronary patients also once a week. So we don't discuss certainly every coronary patient, um, uh, only the complex ones. There's just not, there isn't enough capacity to do that. Um, but we have surgeons on call every day to have a joint discussion with the guys in the cath lab if someone uh, you know is on the table and needs a, an urgent opinion. But we looked at Ontario data, um, we looked at the variability of PCI to cabbage in Ontario, and we found quite a lot of variability across institutions. And very interestingly, even when you limit to um, uh, triple vessel coronary disease, that could have gone either way. The ratio, the amount of patients, uh, the proportion of patients who were having PCI ad hoc was 70%. 70% of patients essentially don't have any kind of discussion, even in the setting of uh, triple vessel coronary disease, which is interesting. So I, I think there's, there's room for improvement there for sure. Mm -hmm. Right. So one of the uncertainties that we discussed a little bit earlier is the durability of, of valves. Uh, let's say in general, with uh, every bioprosthetic heart valves. So how important is anti-calcification treatment, the treatment of the valve leaflets 
in uh, making a decision here? That's a good question. Um, I think that most of the data, not all of it, but most of the data would suggest that um, the better anti-calcification treatment that you have, the longer these valves will last. It, it's not bulletproof though, you know, it is absolutely not bulletproof. So, um, you know, I'm putting my, my, my original chemical engineering hat on here. Uh, and there, there is some, there is some uh, you know, data or some theory that some of these anyway, uh, 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 treatments could actually either not have make any difference at all or, or actually make things worse, uh, especially uh, uh, you know, some of the thermal uh, types, uh, types of stuff. Uh, however, I, I think that in general, um, you know, aggressive approach uh, by, the, by the industry and by the scientists uh, uh, to anti-calcification is probably a reasonable thing. Uh, we, we know very well that, that it's the cross-linking uh, of, uh, uh, of these leaflets with, um, you know, uh, with aldehydes that end up having, you know, attracting calcium that is the reason why these patients uh, end, up, um, end up failing. Now, we are assuming that the manufacturers are going to do a good job with the actual design of the leaflets onto their stent, okay? But uh, that's a whole other issue. Right. Is, is that, what is the most important factor when you chose Valve Bob? Um, where, where do you look at? Is it data that is published in literature about durability, about um, you know EOAs? What, what are the factors? I think those factors should be taken into account. I think number one, I think it's discussion with the patient, uh, and I think that uh, the utilization of also uh, non-biological mechanical valves should be discussed with the patient, specifically younger patients. Uh, I think that that's something that uh, has forgotten. I think that. Uh, with some individuals who do not want to have any further intervention, they're willing to accept uh, taking anticoagulation, the risk of anticoagulation again is to be discussed. So I think that the forefront number, uh, discussion should be made with the patient. And I think based on uh, the geometry or the annulus of the patient, I think you have to decide which valve would be the best for this patient in terms of durability and longevity. And then of course, take into account the other uh, literature that there exists on those specific valve in terms of selecting the valve. Great. So, you know, we, we have discussed a lot of points here and, and maybe the last question that I have for each of one of you is that, uh, so you have a patient that is discussing the heart team and the heart team actually cannot come to a decision. You know, it could be either surgery or, or TAVR. How, how do you, so it really comes back to, you know, making the informed decision together with the patient. Morale, how would you talk with your patients if both options are, you know, a, a good good choice for the patient? What, what do you tell your patient? Yeah, it's a really it's a really important discussion. And we have this this discussion all the time with our patients where you could go either way um, anatomically. If you have, you know, favorable transfemoral access, favorable root anatomy, there's no sort of uh, technical uh, contraindications to, to TAVI. And essentially what I tell patients, um, and it really depends not just on their age, of course, but their overall life expectancy. Um, my bias is that if I think they're going to have a second value in the future. My bias is to implant a large surgical valve with a root enlargement if necessary and set them up for a transcatheter valve in the future. So that's my bias. And I tell them that, you know, the pros and cons, you'll be home the next day, you'll recover very quickly, you don't have to take time off work, you know, th these are the benefits to TAVI for sure. But it's going to come with a higher risk of uh, pacemaker implantation compared to surgery, higher risk of paravalvular leak, less certain durability. And what we do, 
next time is just unclear right now. And, and I take into consideration the size of the annulus and the coronary heights as a, how it'll be set up for the second intervention. And I really tell them sort of details around what that looks like, either TAVI explant or TAVI and TAVI or, you know, TAVI and a surgical TAVI. And once they have all of the data, um, in fact, the younger healthy patients often do choose to go to surgical ABR because they, you know, they want a long-term benefit unless they have, you know, social or other reasons that, you know, I really can't take time off work. I have to just have a TAVI now and then see what happens in the future and, and, or they're, you know, really, um, scared of, uh, having an invasive procedure, but I try to give them as much of the data as possible, give them the benefit of the doubt that they can, you know, actually understand the nuances behind these decisions. And then ultimately, it's, of course, uh, of course, their decision. You know, we didn't touch about uh, talk, talk really about the reconstructive aspects of someone with AI or someone who's really, you know, uh, young with really long life expectancy. If you're living 20 years, especially if you're a woman with a small annulus, I'm telling you about the Ross procedure. So, you know, we'll I'll go through uh, surgical AVR, TAVI, which, you know, is really, in my opinion, not great in the person with a long life expectancy, mechanical valve and Ross. And I'll go through all of the data about, you know, the pros and cons of each option and, uh, and then let them decide. Great. So maybe Joan, the, 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 to change the patient a little bit slightly is a uh, 70 year old uh, with a not too heavily calcified bicuspid aortic valve that wants to have um, a less invasive approach. Yeah. How do you talk with that patient? Yeah. So I, I suppose one of the, the first answer to you, if you have a if you have a situation where you know you have a deadlock, I think that's a really clear answer. You, you know, you give the information the best you can to your patients, let them make this decision. It's like that's end of story. Okay. The this so the patient is, is king, uh, as long as they're well informed. Uh as as they said in some in, in some great movies, uh, there's no right and wrong, there's just decisions and consequences. Okay. So uh now to answer your question. I guess what Moral just said a little bit about, uh, you know, she was hinting at it with, with say, some of the younger women and, and so on and so forth. This is huge. The fact of the matter is, is that if you looked at the European guidelines, one of the things that if you look at it really closely is that they are, they are absolutely, it's absolutely positive towards surgical aortic valve if you have a life expectancy over 20 years. Now, if you look at the life insurance tables in Western Europe and in America of someone who reaches 70, guess what the life expectancy is of somebody who reaches 70? If you've made it to 70 already, you you're actually have exactly 20 years to live, okay? So, so 70 is, is the new 60, okay? So uh, these patients live a long time, especially if they're bicuspid valves and have no other problems. Uh, and so in those cases, you know, I would prefer to put in a surgical valve and then if they need another valve, do a valve valve. Why? Because they have a long life expectancy, so and and it's very guideline appropriate. Uh, it was in the European guidelines. If you have less than a ten year tavern, if you have ten to twenty, go either way. Talk to the patient. But they were very clear. If it's over twenty year life expectancy, which is seventy, okay, uh, in the U.S. and in the Western Europe, then uh, that would be the answer to my to my question. So if you take the life expectancy of that patient plus the fact that. In a bicuspid valve, no matter how you slice it or dice it, all the data would suggest that a TAVR in a BAV patient is not quite as good as a TAVR in a TAV patient, despite the most recent paper that came out by Raj Bakar. The, um, the, the, the general data sets are favorable towards SAVR in that group for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and um, so 
uh, I would suggest a tavern. But, you know, a lot of patients, some patients will say, I want a tavern. So we'll, we'll give them what they want after they're fully informed. Good. And then maybe for Bob, the last one is that the patient who is 75 years of age, so exactly at the cutoff point for, you know, the U European guidelines, and has a mid-LED mid stenosis, um, you know, easy to treat with one stent. What would you say? I think this is what Morale had brought out when you have concomitant coronary disease with aortic stenosis. I think, again, this has to be very uh, uh, basically on patient, uh, again, uh, uh, selection in terms of other risk and other morbidities. If the patient is a patient that could tolerate surgical AVR, I would recommend them to have, uh, and specifically as Joe has mentioned, 75, 70. These patients will have a longevity of around 15 to 20 years. So I think if you can give them a good uh, left internal thoracic artery graft uh, to the LAD and then also do a surgical aortic valve replacement would be probably the best scenario. But however, again, you have to basically uh, individualize each patient and consider them basically each patient separately. If the patient is at, has got other things as frail, has got other things, the SDS score and other risk factors that could potentially make them higher risk on the surgical type of intervention, then I think a combined PCI with TAVR uh, is also an option. So I think that when you get concomitant disease, I think there were outside the guideline parameters. I think you have to individualize each patient and treat them separately based on the other factors, social factors. Can they live on their own? What kind of support they have afterwards? All these kind of stuff is very critical. Great. Yeah, Joe, you have... So I'd like to say something to the podcast you know, listeners is that we have this kind of um, in the surgical aortic valve universe, we have a lot of different valves now. There's a, the, the manufacturers have, uh, have made many, many types of valves. And so I don't, I, I think you should approach this without that one size does not fit all. Okay. There are many different scenarios. This gets back to the question that Peter gave to Bob, which is, I think we need a little bit more sophistication regarding our surgical implantation of valves. Uh, and this is at a number of different domains and levels. Uh, for example, a pig valve, a, a porcine valve may be actually better, especially if you can get a big one in, in a severe AI case with a big ventricle because they have better diastolic function. Uh, you may want to do a root procedure sometimes. Sometimes the best AVR is actually a root procedure, especially if you're thinking about a bigger valve and you're thinking about TAVR in the, in the future. There's nothing easier than a TAVR uh, in a root procedure, okay? It's really simple. Uh, and so there's a various different kinds of things uh, and you, uh, that, you, that you can do. So we can't just kind of throw in the aortic valves willy-nilly. We have to think about them. We have a great armamentarium of aortic valves in our, in our specialty, and, and I think you should use them. Great. That's a great ending of this podcast. Um, well, and the great faculty that we had here today. Uh, thanks very much, Moral Ozuzian from Toronto, Bob Kiali from UC um, Health Center, uh, David Health Center, and Joe Bavaria from Philadelphia. Thank you all very much for joining us here today. And um, I hope when there are questions that uh, you will send them to us and we maybe to uh, happy to answer them later. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Cardiac Exchange by Medtronic. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe to your preferred platform. You can also get more info about today's podcast and upcoming shows at medtronic.com slash cardiac exchange. Thanks for listening.